Thank you, guys. Thank you. Um, whether you've been around church or you grew up in church or spent much time around churches, chances are you have heard Amazing Grace. It is considered to be the most popular hymn ever sung, ever written. It is estimated to be sung over 10 million times annually. Um, and not only that, it's considered to be the most recognizable song in the English-speaking world. And as popular as this song is, as popular as it is, the thing that makes it so, so incredibly powerful, beyond just the words, the thing that makes it so incredibly powerful is the backstory to this song. Because this song was written in the 18th century by an Anglican uh, minister named John Newton. And obviously, John Newton hadn't started his life out as an Anglican minister, but had started his life out as a sailor. And not just a sailor, but at a time and a place where sailors were considered to be some of the most crude and profane people, John Newton was considered to be the most profane and crude of sailors. And if you could make a sailor blush, John Newton could make a sailor blush. In fact, the captain on the ship that he was on considered him so profane, the captain himself of the ship was, was bothered uh, by the extent to which John Newton used profanity. In fact, he used so much profanity that when he ran out of profanity, it was said that he made up his own profanity. <laughs> and there was a point where the captain of the ship put him in chains. The prisoners tried to starve him to death because they hated him so much. And John Newton eventually found himself on a slave ship, sailing slaves from the west coast of Africa across the Middle Passage to the British West Indies. And aboard that ship, he was responsible for the rape of women, the murder of human beings, and the enslavement of hundreds and thousands of men, women, and children. And on one of those voyages across the Atlantic, they came into a storm that was so bad that it seemed like the ship might sink. And as John Newton ran up onto the deck of the ship to try to do whatever he could to help, he watched as the helmsman at the wheel was washed overboard by a wave never to be seen again. And then John Newton ran and took the wheel and looked up into the sky and cried out for the first time in his life to the God that he had rejected since his youth and said, God, have mercy on us, which started, that desperate moment started him over the next weeks and months and years to ask this question, am I worthy? Am I worthy of God's mercy? Am I worthy of God's grace? Am I worthy of his forgiveness? Am I worthy? And I think whether we realize it or not, whether we think about it consciously or not, whether we've put words to it or not, I think every single one of us, you have, I have, I think every single person has asked ourselves that same question in one way or another, am I worthy? Am I acceptable? And here's how we tend to answer that question. And again, whether we think about this or not, whether we do this consciously or not, here's how we tend to answer that question. We tend to answer that question by referring to some kind of standard. There's, there's some kind of standard 
that we compare ourselves to, that we measure ourselves against to determine whether or not we are worthy, to determine whether or not we are acceptable. And, and your standards probably different from my standards, different from another person's standard, and all of our standards come from different places. And maybe, maybe your standard, that thing that you compare yourself against, where you do it, whether you do it consciously or not, the thing that you compare yourself against to know whether or not you're acceptable, acceptable. Maybe it's based on how you were raised. You know, maybe you were raised and you were told that a husband is supposed to be a certain way and a father is supposed to be a certain way. And it means this to be a good person. Your whole life, you try to live up to that standard. Or maybe for some of you, your standard is the opposite of what you saw when you were growing up. And your standard is based on, I'm going to be anything but what my parents were. I'm going to be anything but what I saw growing up. And that's the standard that you try to reach. Maybe for some of us, our standards is defined by a faith tradition. And whatever our faith tradition was growing up to define this is what it means to be acceptable. That's the standard that we find ourselves striving toward, whether we realize it or not. Maybe for some of us, it's a cultural standard. It's what culture, society says that I need to live up to in order to be acceptable. It's what I have to look like. It's the kind of clothes that I have to wear. It's the kind of car that I have to drive. It's the kind of house that I have to live in. Or maybe, maybe some of us, that standard that we're striving to live up to, that we're striving to meet, that standard that whether we know it or not, we look to to define whether or not we're acceptable is a standard of success. And if I'm more successful at my business or I'm more successful at what I do, the more acceptable I am or the more money I make, the more worthy I am. But for each of us, maybe it's one of them or it's some of them or it's all of them or it's a different one. All of us have some kind of standard that we have established, that we refer to, that we measure ourselves against, that we compare ourselves to, that we strive to achieve in order to know that we are acceptable. But the problem, the problem with the standard is that the result of the standard is that we use the standard to define our value. We look to the standard and how we compare to the standard to determine whether or not we are valuable. And what that results in is this fear that if I can't meet the standard, if I fall short of the standard or I fail to meet it in some way, then I am less valuable. I am less acceptable. I if I can't meet the standard, if I can't measure up, I become worth less. If I can't measure up to what my parents say, a father or a husband or a provider is supposed to be, then maybe I am worth less. Or if I can't outwork the person next to me, or if I can't be more successful than my neighbor, or if I can't own the right thing, or drive the right thing, or take the right vacations, then maybe, just maybe, I am worth less. Or if I can't live up to what my faith tradition says I need to live up to, then maybe I am worth less. And the result is, the result is that what drives us to meet the standard, what drives us to strive to measure up to the standard, isn't because we're convinced of the goodness or the righteousness of the standard. What drives us to meet the standard is fear. Fear of being found worth less. And the result is, the result is, we become enslaved by the standard. And this isn't a you problem, and it's not a me problem, this is a we problem, because wherever you find human beings, you find people that are enslaved by some kind or another of a standard. And it was no different 2,000 years ago, if we went back 2,000 years 
to first century Palestine, we would find the exact same circumstances. People trying to measure up to a standard so that they wouldn't be found worth less. Only the standard at that time would look a little bit different than our standard today, and it wasn't based on what kind of car you drove, and it didn't matter what kind of travel league your kids were in. What their standard was based on was something called the law. And what the law was, the law was the 613 commandments God had given to his people 1,400 years before through the prophet Moses that were meant to be the governing guidelines for God's people. The law was meant to be, this is what you need to do as a nation in order to experience liberty, in order to experience justice, in order to experience peace. In essence, the law was what God's people had to do in order to be happy. But what happened was, in the centuries leading up to first, the, the first centuries, in those centuries during that time, the religious leaders, the, the, the Jewish religious leaders, took the law and manipulated it from a good thing into a standard. They took the law and they manipulated it from something that people had to do in order to be happy to something that people had to do in order to make God happy. They manipulated it from something that was meant to help us to understand what it took to satisfy us and manipulated it into this is what it takes to satisfy God. And those religious ruling leaders of that time developed a narrative that said if you can't live up to the law, if you can't live up to the standard, you are not worthy of God and God will not accept you. And according to their theological system, and most theological systems of religions ever since, their theological system said that what makes God happy ultimately is our external conformity to rules. And the religious leaders, they took that narrative and they used that narrative and manipulated it to turn themselves into the elite, the upper class, the ones who are favored by God, the righteous, the holy, the accepted ones. And they said, anybody who can't meet that standard is unacceptable, will be rejected as an outcast, and won't be welcomed into fellowship with God's people or with God. And those people will be considered worth less. And into that context, onto the pages of history, walked Jesus of Nazareth. And he presented himself as a rabbi, and he taught like a rabbi, and he called out followers like a rabbi. But he wasn't like any other rabbi, and he did things that were completely different from any other rabbi. And he did two things especially that drove the religious leaders nuts. The first thing he did was he claimed things that only God could claim. Jesus said that he had the power and the authority to forgive sin, sin. Not somebody's sins against him. He had the authority to forgive sins. And he called God his father, which they took as meaning that he was making himself equal to God. And Jesus took the title that God had given to Moses 1,400 years before. When Jesus said, before Abraham was born, I am, he claimed God's title. For himself. The second thing that Jesus did that drove the religious leaders nuts was that he accepted the people that they rejected. He liked people that were nothing like them. And when we read through the firsthand accounts of the life of Jesus, 
We find that, in fact, Jesus befriended tax collectors. He shared meals with prostitutes. He defended adulterers. He hung out with marginalized ethnic minorities. He welcomed children. He touched and he healed the sick and the lame. He told stories that made heroes out of harlots. He said that he had not come for the righteous but for sinners. And he made God out to be a doting father who loved his children no matter how far they wandered away from him. And Jesus called them his sheep and said that he was the good shepherd who came to willingly lay down his life for them only to take it up again. And then shortly thereafter, Jesus allowed himself to be arrested and nailed to a cross where he was pronounced dead and then put into a tomb where three days later he rose again just like he said he would. And 40 years after that, 40 years after all that happened, one of the eyewitnesses of Jesus' life, a man that we know as John After 40 years of thinking through his thoughts and reflecting and refining and reorganizing his thoughts, wrote an account of the life of Jesus. And after 40 years of thinking it through until he got it just right, here's how John starts out his account of the life of Jesus. He says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. And it's like John... It sounds like you're talking about a person. It almost sounds like you're talking about a person that is equal to God. And John says, yeah, I know, I am. And he says this. The word became flesh. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory. And here's John saying, God has put on flesh. And he came and he spent time with us. God has put on flesh, and we saw him. Now, if you had the opportunity to sit down with John, to sit down with somebody who had seen God in flesh face to face, you would probably want to know the same thing that I would want to know. What? What was he like? And here's what John says. We've seen his glory, the glory of the one and only All right, we get it, John, the one and only, the one and only, we get it. But what was he like? The one and only who came from the Father, right? We get it, he came from the Father. We get that, we're with you, you've got our attention, but what was he like? Give us a word about what he was like. He was full of grace and truth. He was full of grace and truth. After 40 years of thinking and reflecting and getting his thoughts just right, the first way that John describes Jesus is that he was full of grace and truth. And grace comes from a Greek word, charis, which means God's unmerited favor, that God loves us unconditionally. Grace is the active working of God's unconditional love. And truth, truth comes from the Greek word aletheia, which means the making known of reality. It is the revealing of something that was previously unknown. And here John is saying that God has put on flesh and he has come to be with us. And where God might have been a little bit fuzzy before and maybe we didn't really clearly understand who God was, now God has made himself fully known. And I'm telling you, he loves us. And not just loves us in some far off, distant kind of love, But he likes us. He likes us. And then John says this. He says, For the law was given through Moses. 
He's like, you remember the law? You guys remember the law? And they're like, yeah, we remember the law. He's like, remember how the law was meant to be your governing reality? And they're like, yeah, we remember that. It was meant to be our governing reality. Then it became the standard that we were held to and the standard that we were compared against and the standard that told us that we were worth less. And John says, yeah, and remember the same way that Moses brought the law, now grace and truth have come through Jesus Christ. He's saying, now the law, the standard, has been replaced by grace. And you are no longer evaluated by how you compare to a standard. Your worth and your value and your identity is defined by grace. Not something that you have to live up to, but something that comes down to you where you are right now. That says you are no longer worthless, but you are priceless. And through grace, through grace, we've been set free from the standard whether your standard is law or your, whether your standard is some faith tradition or whether your standard is what you were told that you had to live up to or what you had to compare to, grace frees us from whatever standard you are straining and striving to achieve. Grace says, uh-uh. Your value has nothing to do with how you compare to some external standard. Your value has to do with the love of God who says you are mine and you are priceless. Grace says, grace says it is no longer about a standard. It's about the love of a father for his child. Grace says God loves you exactly as you are, not as you should be. Grace says there is nothing, nothing you could do to make God love you anymore. There is no amount of Bible study. There is no amount of serving. There is no amount of quiet time. There is no amount of giving that will make God love you any more than he already does. And there is nothing you could do that would make God love you any less. And there is no mistake you could make, nothing that you could mess up, no moral failure big enough that would ever make God love you any less, and grace comes free. And the moment we try to earn God's grace or repay God for his grace, we abolish grace and return to a standard. And God says, no, to receive grace, you have to receive it freely. And grace frees us from striving and trying to prove ourselves to God and earn God's love and merit his favor. And grace frees us from the shame and the guilt and the resulting fear that comes from thinking that our mistakes have defined us because grace says, no, you are defined by the love of a father who says that you are priceless. And that's what's so scandalous about the grace of Jesus Christ is that he gives it out freely to anybody. He gives grace to religious hypocrites and teenage prostitutes. He gives grace to the noble and to the lowly. He gives grace to atheists and agnostics. He gives grace to drunks and to rapists. He gives grace to blue-collar workers and white-collar criminals. He gives grace to the man on the corner. He gives grace to your middle-class neighbor. He gives grace to corrupt politicians and people in welfare lines. He gives grace to the proud and to the broken and to the shattered and to the scarred. And he gives grace even to people like you and people like me. And he gives it free, free grace, free grace, free grace. And it might cause some of us to wonder, but how could, how could God do that? Because wouldn't that mean that people would just do whatever they wanted? 
Wouldn't that mean that people would just do whatever they wanted and there would be mayhem and God would just be fine with it? Why would anybody, why would anybody do what God said if God just gave out his grace that freely? Here's why. Here's why. Because grace has nothing to do with legalism. People who think that way see grace as a get-out-of-jail-free card. They see grace through these judicial terms that grace just means I'm not going to have my mistakes held against me. I'm not going to be punished for my mistakes. But grace isn't about judiciousness. It's not about the law. Grace is about a relationship. It's about a heavenly father who's saying, you've been accepted already. And when people properly understand grace and see it as an extension of the unconditional love of God, grace inspires trust because grace frees us to trust God. And here's what that looks like. I'm going to give you an illustration that is a well-worn, church-wide used illustration. And it's so old it has holes in the knees of its pants, but we'll use it this morning anyway because it's good. Imagine a house fire, and the mom runs out, and the dad goes to go up the stairs to get the children, but the stairs are blocked, and he can't get up there, so the dad runs out into the yard, too, and he looks up into the second-story window, and he sees his two young kids at the window, and smoke pouring out of the window, and the father goes over to the window, and he says, guys, jump, and I'll catch you, right? Trust me, jump, and I'll catch you. And the kids scream back at him, but we can't see you. The smoke is too thick. We can't see you. How do we know that you're there? And the father says, but I can see you. Now trust me. Trust me. Does that father love his kids unconditionally? Yeah. What, is, what inspires that father to do that? Grace. Grace. That father offering to catch those kids is an active extension of his unconditional love. It's grace. It's grace. And those kids stand in the window and they think, I don't know, can we trust him? In that moment, does the father still have grace for his children? Absolutely. And let's say, just for the sake of our illustration, let's say one of them jumps and one of them doesn't. Let's ask this question. Does the father have grace for the one who jumps before he jumps or after he jumps? Does the child have to jump in order to receive God's grace? No. No, the, the father has grace before he jumps. Grace precedes trust. Let's say the other one never jumps. Does that child still have the father's grace? Yeah. Does the father love that child any less because he stands in the window refusing to jump? No. They both have grace, grace, grace. But the grace for the one is without effect because they don't trust. And whether or not you trust God and whether or not I trust God comes down to this one simple question. Do I trust that he loves me? Do I trust that he loves me? Whether or not you jump, whether or not I jump, because God will call us to jump. God will call us to walk away from things. God will call us to sacrifice things. God will call us to give things. God will call us to give of our time and our resources and our efforts. And God will call us over and over and over again. And whether or not you jump and whether or not I jump comes down to the question, do I trust that he loves me? Do I trust that if I jump, it'll be better? And if you do, 
If you trust that God loves you, and not just loves you in this far off, detached kind of way, but loves you and that he, he knows what he created you for. He knows what will produce your best, your highest happiness and well-being. And people who trust God like that, people who trust God that, grace then frees them. Grace frees them to change. Not just to trust, but when people trust God, it frees them to change. And here's what that change looks like. And this is, this is an interesting thing that I, I've, just, I've experienced myself and I've watched other people experience this. And, and we think, we think that, that change as a, as a follower of Christ goes something like this, that you know, we work hard and we get better and it kind of goes in this you know, one-to-one kind of correlation relationship that as we exert effort, we get better. And to an extent, that's true. And what we find early on in our lives as followers of Christ is that we get a lot of the external stuff cleaned up early for a lot of us. You know, we make the decision to follow Christ, and he says, stop swearing, and we stop swearing. He says, stop drinking, and we stop drinking. He says, stop sleeping around, and we stop sleeping around. And before long, within a year or two, we get to this point where we think, holy cow, got it all cleaned up. I made it. I don't know that there's any further up that I can go than here. But then not long after that, anybody who's been following Christ for some period of time, not long after that, we start to see weeds growing up in the garden, right? We start seeing weeds of jealousy and weeds of bitterness and weeds of doubt and weeds of lust starting to grow up or we start to see some moral failures or maybe even significant moral failures. And when those things start to come up, we, we start to think, well, what's, what's going on? Because, you know, I, I'd arrived. You know, I, I was here. And we hear people say things like, like uh, I, I don't know what happened to me because th- this isn't who I am. Or, or we hear people say things like, you know, I know God forgives me, but I don't forgive myself. And, and, and when you hear people saying that, or you've said that yourself, he hears what you're saying is, you know what? I had met the standard. You, you know, somebody has lost track of, I'm living because God is pleased with me. Instead, they're living in order to please God, and they had thought they arrived. And when they say, you know, that's not who I am, or I can't forgive myself, what they're saying is, you know what? I should be up here. I should have achieved this. this. This is who I am. And when we're living for the standard, we can't move on from that place. But here's what grace does. Grace allows us to hear God's voice, and God's voice says, uh-uh, you were never up here. <laughs> you thought you were up here. This is where you thought you were. No. When we have grace, grace allows us to hear God say, but, but really, no, uh, you're down here. And in fact, you've always been down there. And, and you've come up a little bit. You've made some changes. But when it comes to like your core character, you're down here. And God says, I've always known this. It was you who didn't see it. It just took the right circumstances to open your eyes to the fact, uh uh-uh, you hadn't progressed as far as you thought you had. You're really down here. But guess what? The grace that I had for you when you were here and the grace that I had for you when you were here is the same grace that I have for you where you are right now. My grace is enough for you. And that kind of grace allows us to have an honest self-assessment 
of where we are. It allows us to look ourselves in the mirror and say, I might not be who I liked to think that I was, because we like to think that we are who we are when we're at our best, when in reality, we are who we are when we're at our worst. And God's grace says that's okay, because you are still priceless. Now let's take a look at where you are, because now we can work on this together. Now that you know you're there, and I've always known you're there, now, now we can do some work. Now we can fix this. And not just trim it off at ground level like we do with weeds, but we can go all the way down to the root and pull this thing out. And the Christian life isn't so much of this moving towards holiness and holiness and holiness through external deeds and, and measures and getting more and more righteous externally, but, but it's this growth and recognizing, oh, year after year after year, 10 years, 15 years, 20 years, realizing, holy cow, I am way more broken than I ever thought I was. And it gives us this more and more honest assessment of ourselves. But at the same time, at the same time, it's affecting our character at this deep core level. So at the same time, our character is moving up little by precious little. But as we grow in our ability to take an honest assessment of where we are, what it does, it creates this chasm, this chasm between us and the standard. And guess what fills that chasm up? It's grace. It's grace. And the more we realize how broken we are, the more we appreciate God's grace, the more we see just how much grace it takes for God to love us and to put up with us and endear us to himself. And the more we see God's grace, the more we love him. And the more we love him, the more we trust him. And the more we do, the more we change. And so we grow into this more and more humble, yet loving and trusting Christ-like version of ourselves. And what happens as a result of that is that then grace, grace frees us to give grace. When we see just how much grace we need, grace frees us to give grace. Because people who are fully accepted accept others fully. People who recognize how fully they've been accepted tend to accept others fully. And by acceptance, by acceptance, I don't mean tolerance, where we just put up with other people. And by acceptance, I don't mean approval. It doesn't mean that we approve of the choices that other people make. And by acceptance, by acceptance, I don't mean agreement. It doesn't mean that I agree with everything that everybody else says. But acceptance is unconditional, relational hospitality. Acceptance means that I invite someone in. Regardless of their past, regardless of the mistakes, regardless of the mistakes that they're currently making, I invite them in and I say, I am for you. And there's nothing, nothing that I can find out about you that will make me any less for you. That's acceptance. That's grace. Now what if? What if Jesus' whole idea was that now, the grace that he had, the grace that he expressed, that he meant for that same grace to be expressed through his body, the church. The church that is his representative on earth right now, that the same grace he expressed would be expressed 
of the church and be expressed by every single one of us. The same unconditional relational hospitality would be expressed through us to this world, not just here on Sunday mornings, but in our homes and in our families and in our neighborhoods and at our workplace and on social media and wherever we find ourselves, that we would become a people, a community, a healing agent in a broken and troubled world that extends God's grace to everyone to everyone, regardless of their ideology, regardless of their politics, regardless of their sexuality, regardless of the choices they have made or are making, regardless of their race, regardless of their ethnicity, that we would become conduits of the grace of God that wherever people encountered us, wherever people encountered you, and wherever people encountered me, they would find someone that accepted them and they would experience God's grace. First word, first word that John used to describe God in flesh was grace. He was full of grace. And what I challenge myself with is, is, is that the first word that somebody would use to describe me? That my dad is full of grace. That my husband is full of grace, that my coworker is full of grace, that my neighbor is full of grace. Because it should be. It should be. Because I want, I want people who come in contact with me to experience grace. And I hope that's your desire too. In 1779. John Newton sat down to write a hymn that would be the hymn that he would use for the first worship service for his congregation of the year. And he wanted to write a hymn that would cause them to think back on the things that God had done for them and create a sense of gratitude for what God had done for them. And so as he reflected on it, and when he, reflect, when he reflected on it, he started thinking about what he was most grateful for, that God had done for him in his life. As he thought about it and challenged himself and, and considered it, he wrote one word, grace. Grace. It was the thing that, as he looked back on his life, he was most thankful for from God, that that someone who was responsible for rape and murder and the enslavement, the lifelong enslavement of hundreds and thousands of people, that God's grace would be sufficient for him, that a good and loving father could look at him and look at all the things that he had done and give him grace. And here's the effect that it had in John Newton's life. Not only did he become a follower of Christ, not only did he become a leader in the church, not only did he become a proponent of the grace of God that heals and frees human beings, but he went on to share his experiences on the slave ship to impact legislation to cause Britain to outlaw slavery and outlaw the slave trade altogether. He lived to see that before he died. And at the end of his life, one of the things that he wrote in his journal was that there 
wasn't much that he could remember. There wasn't much that he could look back on. And, and he said he found his memory and his thoughts very fuzzy. But he said one thing was crystal clear. He was a great sinner. But that Jesus Christ is a great Savior because of grace, because of grace, because of grace. And next to that one word that he had written, grace, he wrote one more word, amazing. What if God's grace, what if God's grace got a hold of you? And what if by God's grace you could recognize that you are a completely, exactly as you are, a completely welcomed and accepted child of God and that that would become your identity, that you could accept yourself exactly as you are. And that grace, by God's grace, that you would trust Him, that you would recognize that your heavenly Father loves you and that you would trust Him. What if, what if by God's grace, you and I and all of our brokenness and all of our mess became the kind of people that God could use to extend his grace to a lost and broken world. And that grace would begin to, he would begin to heal lost and broken hearts. And maybe, just maybe, we would see God's will done in this world as in heaven. And wouldn't that be amazing?
so much for your grace and we pray that your grace would have effect in our lives and in our hearts and it would work through us in this lost and broken world that through us this world would experience your grace we ask it all in Jesus name and all God's people said